for December 5th, 2016. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 440, The Moana Myth. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than we when we are hanging out together and enjoying a long talk on our favorite topics, our favorite movies, TV shows, music, and so on. Today, Moana, uh, the animated film from Disney, won the box office this weekend, and uh, we finally got around to seeing it. Uh, we would like to talk about it with you now. Um, I would say there are Spoiler alert, it's a spoiler alert for Moana, but it's a Disney movie. I mean, what do you really want? I mean, do you think it ends in, in tragedy? Do you think it ends in apocalypse? No. Uh, good triumphs over evil. And there are some catchy tunes written by, uh, among others, a, a team including Lin-Manuel Miranda. We're very excited to talk about it with our panel tonight. And panel, in honor of Moana, uh, as you introduce yourself, tell us if you know who you really are. I have my friend Pete Fenzel. Hi, Matt. I have this tattoo of a Dodge Challenger on my back, and I really <laughs> hope that I got the right tattoo, uh, <laughs> that I've correctly identified how the universe works and have inked myself accordingly. Oh, I feel like Janis Joplin. I want to sing, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz uh, as a tattoo. We have Mark Lee. Mark, do you know who you really are? I mean, if you really ask me that question in that way, I'm going to have to say an unqualified no. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. Sorry, Excellent. got nothing. And uh and I uh I am uh your host Matt Rather from the island from the cultural island of Los Angeles, uh descended from many generations of the coastal elite. Uh, and, uh, my, my, my people are, uh, my people are what, uh, uh, I was trying to think of, I'm trying to think of something like Voyagers. Uh, my people are, are Voyagers to cocktails and fancy dinners. Um, I was going to say your people are rock stackers. Yeah. Yeah. Many rocks upon each other. I suppose. Um, all right. So, uh, so Moana in just a second, uh, this, this film with its, uh, uh, sort of Hawaiian, uh, cultural, um, background the ocean is a very important character in so uh we that was tortured discourse to say that the ocean is an important character in uh in this film given its setting uh and the in the sort of pacific islands but the um uh the the question i want to ask uh panel do you have has the ocean ever called you uh do you have a memory of uh of the ocean from when you were very very small that you would like to share with us now uh first i have a feeling we might be headed to the jersey shore because first in the alphabet <laughs> is our friend pete fenzel Yes, Harvey Cedars specifically down in the Jersey Shore, uh, which is where we used to go when I was very young. Uh, in fact, um, one of my siblings in utero we referred to as Harvey uh, for reasons that I'd rather not dwell on, I suspect. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, do you guys have in utero names for your siblings? Is that a thing? I'll, I'll, I'll table that question. Leave it in the comments if you want to talk about that whole topic, not related to Moana. But when I was down on the Jersey Shore as a young child, I think this is probably around five or six, I had my first interaction with the ocean that was very formative and is still the way that I think about the ocean when I, when I go to the beach, which is to go into the waves and to kind of strive against the waves 
and like like the wave is coming and you just kind of hit it like you let it hit you with full force right or you jump into it or you roll around right you let the wave toss you around uh and not so much body surfing right there's body surfing there's boogie boarding but i've never really used the waves to go much of a place it's more to kind of feel the tumult of them and i remember looking at the foam on the waves and the waves down in Harvey Cedars are not particularly high, but the waves would come in and the, the dashing foam against the rocks and the sand looked to me like a teeming band of white dogs, just the heads of white dogs kind of surging past each other, kind of yapping and, and, and slurping or, you know, whatever at, at the, at the beach and, and the kind of onrush of them with that kind of collective vigor. It, there's a real sense of, of camaraderie, of 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 multipleness, right? Being part of something that's not just uh, large and amorphous, but large and many, right? And, and kind of going into the waves, and then going out a little bit past the waves, and just kind of staring at the ocean like a friend who beats you up because you enjoy it, which is a uh, an odd sort of thing that I don't feel about real people, but I feel about water. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Is it is it the absence of malice? Right in the uh, in in the ocean that you think uh, that you think you can you can survive the kind of rough and tumble the rough and tumble play of the pack of dogs. Do you become like one? Do you become like one of the dogs, or is are all the dogs different from you? Uh, no, it's like they're happy to see me. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's like sure. come play, come play. Right? Sure, it's come like play. right. It's like uh, you have a pack of puppies, and they like they they are behind a gate, and they tum- they're pent up, but they tumble out, and uh, they may knock you over, uh, but they they uh, are are just delighted to see you, and and end up licking you, and and uh, having the greatest time together. Exactly. Uh, Mark Lee, uh, you you were uh, you were not born on a coast, were you? But you you uh, uh, you might have some uh, memory or formative of experience of the ocean. Tell us about it. Sure. So, uh, as longtime listeners of the podcast will know, I grew up in the state of Alabama, um, in a place that was about maybe a five-hour drive away from the Florida Panhandle. Um, the part of the Panhandle specifically that I um, uh, respectfully referred to as the Redneck Riviera. It's a thing. Look it up. It's an Urban Dictionary. Um, and so uh, occasionally the family would, would vacation on the Redneck Riviera. I didn't consider myself much of a beach kid, but I do have one very formative memory of the beach and of the ocean uh, from, from growing up. It was a spring break, I believe, in my sophomore year in high school. And uh, the entire week was spent, uh, we'd rented a place on the beach and I spent uh, almost all of my time indoors studying for standardized tests. And the ocean, this entire week, beckoned out to me as the source of forbidden leisure. This place where I could not go because uh, I was uh, bound to my duties as a son and as a scholar. <laughs> um, and now as an adult, I view the ocean not as this thing that is impossibly out of reach uh, that taunts me with its promise of of, uh, of of its of its cool embrace and its liquid freedom, but as something that I is 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 well within my grasp uh, now that I'm adult that I live uh, on the East Coast and can you know uh, take the subway to Coney Island. These things are now uh, uh, available to me, and the ocean now uh, is is a symbol of leisure and freedom, and not something that taunted me while I was preparing for the SAT. So uh, th- that's how I feel about the ocean, DZ. I, I've come a long way. I think is what I'm trying to say. That's very interesting, though, because Pete sees it as a as a treasured companion and a playmate, right? As a you know, as as sort of a a, a group of friends or something like that, a single friend. And 
and a group of friends simultaneously. But but you see it in and I think in cooler terms, almost as though it were a uh, almost as though it were a lover that you worked hard to woo, and now uh, you don't you don't take uh, the affections of the ocean lightly. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's far more poetic than what I was saying. So let's go with that. Yes, <laughs> a lover that I tried very hard to woo. I uh, I grew up in uh, at the bleeding edge of America in Santa Monica, uh, so you know I was never really growing up never more than ten minutes from uh, some of the greatest beaches in the world, and uh, I, we we went as children. Now that now that I'm in my thirties and and many of my friends have children. Um, I've discovered through them how much of your effort as a parent is taking up is taken up with just trying to fill the kids time, you know, just trying to do stuff uh, and have activities uh, for for the kids. And the ocean is a perfect one because it's it's sort of ever changing. Right. You can never step into the same ocean twice. And so it's it's uh, sort of it's inexhaustible to uh, to play. And it's kind of inexhaustible to to experience. Right. Like the ocean, um, the ocean is always destroying your sandcastles in a slightly different way every time every time uh that it happens and the sort of bittersweetness is always uh is always you know just a slightly different flavor of bittersweetness i read a a lot in my 20s um in the kind of the first or kind of the 1.5 wave of food network chef porn uh a lot of like the the post kitchen confidential also kind of uh a bunch of books uh a lot of books about kitchens and chefs and things like this and and um, they they always said that when you salt water for pasta uh, it should taste like your first memories of the ocean and uh, that that chefs would that chefs would say this and that's how you know when you've salted the water enough is that when it causes that Proustian flash of recall um, to uh, uh, to bring you back to your early childhood memories of the ocean, and uh, in a particular book that I read, this was mocked. This was like, I, I does it tastes like salty water? It doesn't taste like my first memories of the ocean, but it does taste like my first memories of the ocean. Like, but like personally, I can remember tasting uh, tasting that salt water as I got knocked over by the admittedly pretty small waves, um, the you know four four or five foot max waves uh, that we get in. In, uh, the the beaches that we used to go to in in Santa Monica Bay, and uh, the the way your mouth would be kind of slammed open as as the wave slammed into you as a young as a young boy, and um, you know you would taste that that salt water, and I I, I don't even want to think about what else was uh, what else was in it before the like the big bay cleanup uh, efforts began, and the like the water quality grades started being published for various public beaches along the uh, along the Santa Monica Bay. But I, I remember that taste of salt water. And I remember one uh, one other thing, too. Um, I would go to the beach with my dad a lot, and he would come in the water swimming with me. And I started swimming as a young kid, and so I was a, a very strong swimmer. But I would I would splash around uh, like I was in danger. Um, you know, a thing a kid's a kid does to get their parents' attention, and he would come. Uh, he would come splash out towards me, and I, you know, I was 
wasn't endangered. He knew that. And I, I knew that this wasn't bad parenting. It was, I think, good parenting. Um, and he would, uh, he would, uh, say, I'll get you, Matt, and I'll save you, boy. And he would, uh, swim out to me and perform this, uh, clownish slapstick, uh, of like uh, slapstick parody of machismo coming to get me where he would be almost, uh, almost to me and then would time it. So he got slammed by a wave and then say, I'll get you, boy. And come, come, uh, come swimming back, come swimming back to me. And I, I, there's probably like a, a psychoanalyst would probably have a field day with that, with that interaction. But I remember it as this sort of cooperative improvisation that, that, uh, that my dad and I did about, uh, fathers and sons about masculinity and about, about a, a sense of, of kind of acknowledging powerlessness in the face of natural forces like the ocean, which is much bigger and much stronger, um, much stronger than you are. And I sort of carry that memory with me when I think, uh, when I think about the ocean. Um, uh, Moana, let's, let's dive, let's dive right into it. Only, only uh-huh. pa- oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> right into the ocean. Only pausing to say that, uh, tis the season, tis the holiday season, and you might be shopping. Um, you might be, uh, buying gifts for yourself or, or for your friends, for your family, for your loved ones. And that we have the Overthinking It gift guide, uh, a tradition since we started the site, uh, where we, the overthinkers, have recommended some things that you might like along many, many categories of merchandise. Uh, uh, the, uh, there's always the coffee section, books, music, uh, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of fitness gear, uh, this year, you know, um, that, that, uh, th- that we might like, uh, Hamilton related merchandise and a great, a great list, a great themed list from Mark Lee, which, uh, comes to mind because the Hamilton mixtape dropped, um, as well this weekend. And so it's, uh, it's a very, uh, it's, it's the most Hamilton time, uh, of the year. Now, you know how these things work, right? This, this is not a mystery to, uh, to anyone, right? When, when we put links using our special codes and stuff on overthinking it and you click them and buy the stuff that we recommend, uh, on our, on our list or actually buy anything from Amazon in a, in a session initiated from, from one of our links, we get a small kickback. It's a couple of percent. It doesn't raise your price at all. Uh, it's called affiliate marketing and, and we were doing it before it was cool. Now, now everybody does it. And so we know you have a choice. Of Amazon links uh, at, at the holidays, and we are very grateful that you use the ones from Overthinking It and have been using them since 2008 when we started the site. Uh, it, it's one of the most successful promotions, one of the most important ones that, that we do every year uh, in terms of um, in terms of supporting the site, in terms of keeping us on the air, in terms of doing uh, funding a lot of the stuff. Uh, we we uh, started the membership program this year, but not everyone is a member. Not everyone has the cash to be a member of Overthinking It or or uh, the desire. But if you would like to, uh, in some sort of low-key way, to support Overthinking It, uh, you can do it without uh, really no no skin off your nose to uh, to use our links when, when you go to Amazon. So uh, 
head over to overthinkingit.com. It's right there on the homepage near the top of the crawl, the waterfall of articles at the, um, at the, uh, uh, the sort of top of the site and just push your outrigger through the, the waterfall, uh, of articles. Click on the, uh, click on the gift guide. Check out some of the cool stuff. And by the way, 5,000 words of great overthinking, some quality entertainment. I, as I edited it and posted it, uh, I had to stop laughing. I had to stop a couple times because I, I was laughing too hard at, at what my, uh, what my, um, uh, colleagues had written. So don't, don't, uh, don't delay. Go check that out now at overthinkingit.com. Uh, if, even if you don't want to buy anything, go and read it and you might find yourself buying, uh, something after all. Okay. Now on to Moana. Um, a lot to talk about with with this film, uh, but just uh, just uh, yes or no. Um, let's let's go around the horn and say, did you like this movie? Uh, yes or no, Pete? Did you like this movie? Yes. And Mark? Yes. And I'm also a yes. This has been the Overthinking It podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for, very it much. Probably Tip your doesn't deserve. <laughs> um, so this is this is a, a Disney movie. So it's a hero movie. It's a it's a uh, it's a hero story. It's a sort of um, it's a sort of uh, uh, hero's journey. It's a sort of. Um, coming of age story it's a sort of many years ago prophecy was foretold uh the the one to break the curse the one to kind of cast the spell the one to uh you know um restore honor and glory and and rightness to uh to the world pete i want to start with you um what do you think what kind of heroism do you think is on display uh in in this movie and how does it compare uh with other kinds of heroic uh animated kids movies uh that you know about and that you care about so i wanted to posit a divide that uh separates a lot of similar kids movies from each other but runs through the culture and because because when i was watching this movie there's a lot of archetypical stuff in this movie there's a lot of stuff that comes from one children's movie to the other but when i was trying to figure out what kind of movie this really is it took me about two thirds of the way through, and then I thought, "Oh, this is a Balto movie." Uh, and I probably have talked about Balto before on the podcast. If I haven't, uh, well, you know what? You're in luck because Balto is great. It's a 1995 cartoon starring Kevin Bacon and Bob Hoskins, among a bunch of other people, uh, based on a true story, but very, very, very liberally based on a true story about a sled dog who's half wolf who takes a bunch of medicine for a sick girl uh, to an isolated town up in Alaska. Um, and Bal- you, the salient cleavage here, I would suggest – is between Balto movies and Lion King movies, because Lion King is 1994, Balto is 1995. Both of them are a shift from the sort of free spirit movies, which I would categorize as Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, right? Uh, Emperor's New Groove, I guess, is sort of like that. Movies where Disney's like, oh, no, you're a free spirit. No, you're not a free spirit. Oh, you're a free spirit again. Isn't that great? Right. Uh, And The Lion King introduces this idea of it's your destiny, Right. Like it's your destiny to do this thing. You're going to have a realization, uh, uh, you know, and it's based on even though the the movie is kind of a media misreading of Hamlet. Right. Uh, An effective one, a strong one in certain ways, weak in others. The ghost is going to tell you that you have destiny and you need to rise to the occasion of the great thing that you are. 
And then what what Balto movies do is they subvert it a little bit, which is uh, the Balto is also based on the call of the wild a little bit. Right. Which is that the dog protagonist is half wolf and has kind of a wolf nature and a dog nature. And because of the wolf nature, the Balto is looked down upon by people and other dogs as being dangerous when, in fact, Balto is quite courageous and excellent and a generally good dog. Right. Uh, and, And ends up saving the day. Right. And and the idea is, is that Balto is 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 part, wants to be part of society, believes in society. Society kind of looks down on Balto. Balto goes out on a mission to affirm and support society, even though society kind of doesn't like him. And then somewhere in the movie, Balto hits rock bottom and Balto has a, a vision quest where he encounters his ancestry. Right. And his his spirit, they, they basically the spirits of the wolves speak to Balto and we're like, you're not a dog, you're a wolf. Right. Use that strength to overcome whatever it is you're facing. And there's an irony to it because it's like you're not part of society. You're better than society. You're different from society. You're part of a repressed aspect like you have a repressed aspect and you should be proud of it rather than ashamed of it. But you should use that spirit to help society. Right. And so that's that's like the Balto story. It's it's similar to I, I started thinking about it being an archetypical story when I saw Hidalgo uh, or like I saw Hidalgo. Then I saw Balto and realized that beat for beat, they're very similar movies. But Balto is an Amblin Entertainment, you know, pre DreamWorks animated film. Hidalgo's Disney. Uh, other movies, the, the guy who the guy who directed Balto and the guy who co-wrote Balto both also directed and wrote Shrek. Uh, so Shrek is the same kind of idea. Kung Fu Panda is the same group of people. Uh, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron is another similar movie, right? And in each of these movies, it's like, oh, you have a secret lineage, right? And you're 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 being looked down upon by the people around you, but you need to realize yourself. And so Moana is kind of like that when she, especially the idea of a ghost coming to you in the darkest hour and being like, I'm a ghost and you need to, to get yourself together and realize who you really are. Uh, that, that to me, I know that's not the same as kind of a Joseph Campbell-esque hero story, but I feel like that's one of the really dominant, especially with, with regards to this idea of repression, right? Uh, and like sort of glorying in the part of you that's repressed by others. Um, and and the vision quest aspect of it feels like it's sort of looping back to this point in the mid '90s where uh, you know this this sort of notion of identity was coming around. I mean, I think, um, I know, I think yeah. what you're saying is not unrelated to the idea of a kind of revisionist Disney movie because, like, among the other things that Moana is uh, in dialogue with, it's in dialogue with the kind of the classical Disney princess movies, right? Oh, yeah. I, actually, a lot of a lot of the let's say post little mermaid uh films are in dialogue with the pre little mermaid films right that with uh cinderella sleeping beauty snow white in particular that um you know uh and and the idea that the idea that uh, th- there is a story, there's an internal story that you have about yourself, and it's important that that internal story be um uh, be congruent with uh, your external presentation and be congruent with the kinds of things that that society values right that that like the the hero 's journey is about correcting an imbalance uh, is about you know there is a, a time of stasis, something happens to disrupt the stasis, and the hero 's journey is about kind of re, uh, re um, you know uh, satisfying right like re sort of making uh, remaking a, a new kind of stasis um, that is restoring balance of the force except well there you go uh that is perhaps a little more mature than that a little more knowing um 
and a little more battle-hardened or hard-won than the old stasis uh, for having been questioned and challenged, but still is a, is a new kind of stasis. I mean, in the traditional hero's journey, the threats are from without. I think what you're saying, Pete, is that that from Moana, uh, that with Moana, that that the threats are, they come in in three they come on three levels. One is the, the threat from without, uh, one is the threat from society, and one is the threat from the self. And those three things kind of operate, those things, three things kind of operate together uh, yeah. in order to produce the tension um, that requires heroism uh, in order to face and correct and to kind of correct the, the, the disjunctions on those three levels, right? Yeah, and, and just to add to what you're saying, Moana, I mean, they overtly have a conversation about whether Moana is a princess or not, and they have to have that conversation because she's going to be sold as a princess, right? She's going to be on all the Disney princess gear. She's the replacement for Lilo, who's too problematized a figure, right, to be on a lot of the merchandise. <laughs> By the way, just thinking about Lilo and Stitch while watching the beginning of this movie was enough to make me cry. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Lilo and Stitch is... Uh, this movie's good, but Lilo and Stitch is a different thing altogether. And I, I don't want to—I I don't want to say that the, the entire Disney Hawaiian mode has been redeclared. But uh, let's not forget what we had before. But yeah, Moana is going to be the Hawaiian princess, so she has to be mentioned. Well, she's a princess, and people are going to have arguments about it. Like children are going to have arguments over whether she's a princess or not. I could just see the brand department being like, "Can you put the word princess?" Like marketing and, and merchandising. So can you put the word princess somewhere in the movie so that we can put her on a backpack next to Ariel and <laughs> yeah. Belle and all that so, stuff? So, Mark, you did a lot of work about on this movie and the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. Do you feel like that's a good that's a good way into talking about this story? Or are you... Uh... Uh, yeah, I, wa- I want to get there in a second, but I want to um, loop back to this idea of the, the Balto um, uh, type of narrative and this idea of what we said here. There are, there are threats from without threats from within and what was the other third threat that we were just talking about Uh, threats threats from society threats from society okay i want to cash this out a little bit and then i think it's worth talking about the joseph campbell's hero journey in just a second because okay so with balto you're talking about you know this uh, balto balto sorry (laughs) i've not seen this movie i was completely ignorant of it until they they say the word balto a lot in the movie balto Balto. you should like balto balto Okay, in Balto, there's this clear threat from within, and there's this real notion of lineage going on here, right? Because you said that he's half dog, half wolf, and his wolf side really comes out, uh, and then the dream sequence later on in the movie. There's something very different, though, going on in Moana, right? In that, like, her lineage is not really in question. She's uh, literally royalty. She's princess, right? She's next in in line in an hereditary monarchy succession-wise. But uh, what is in question of the lineage is the voyager, the seafaring. Mm-hmm. piece of it right yeah um and so like it, she is like balto in that like you know she taps into that forbidden lineage but at the same time though she has very much rests on the um on the legitimate lineage that she has all right and she invokes that when she speaks to maui to get him to uh to, to come along on the, on the quest so i do think that's an important distinction to make and i'd be curious to to see how how that does or doesn't fit in with the vault i i am interested well because for me part of it was that the voyager narrative is key to polynesian cultural identity 
Right. Right. And, and, and this idea of kind of living within the reef and not caring about the world out there, not only does that feel kind of inauthentic to the Polynesian experience. I mean, think about this is and I mean, I'm speaking of Polynesian, like very, very broadly, including Hawaii and Samoa and all sorts of other stuff. Tahiti, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. All of which had Maui, but had different forms of him as a demigod figure. Right. Uh, yeah. Tahiti, all that stuff. But I mean, surfing, right, is like you're going out into the waves. Right. And, and you're like and it's this sense of the sense of adventure and this sense or the sense of courage that's associated with going out on the water. It's like withholding that seems like uh, a, a cultural accommodation to a world that doesn't want to have you there. Uh, if, if you're talking about now, again, I'm not Polynesian, but I, but that's what it felt like to me was that there was in the Voyager narrative a, a narrative of her people that for her father was too scary. Like the father couldn't live, truly live the role of a Polynesian king. He couldn't fully actualize it because he his own his his friend had died. And so he had withdrawn, right? Burning the boats are the cultural legacy of the Polynesians and burning the boats is like burning the cultural legacy of the Polynesians. So and roughly that, speaking to be like really reductive, essentially the Voyager aspect of their culture is similar to like the, the wolf lineage of Balto, like the wolfness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In the sense that it's like, um, it's not convenient for society to think of those kinds of beings having pride, Right. Like like it's it's like to have like should you because because obviously the movie is I mean, Call of the Wild. It's debatable whether Call of the Wild is actually about wolves like Jack London is probably fond enough of dogs that he's just talking about dogs and wolves. But <laughs> but it, I mean, maybe not. Right. It's hard to say with something like Call of the Wild, where it's like he really seems to be very fond and, and seems to think he knows how dogs think. But when you're talking about Call of the Wild as, as a kind of um, um, cultural, I mean, I hate to use the word meme because it's taken on so many of, of a different different attitude. But when you think of the cultural influences of the idea of Call of the Wild, there is an ethnic sense to it, right? An ethnic sense. Like, I, my, my people used to be this, like, strong, to a degree, sad, like, this idea that society has has demonized, otherized, and, su- and subdued and suppressed and oppressed and repressed uh, people who think of themselves as proud and violent, Right. Uh, and this is the this is also kind of the Nietzschean narrative of the of the bird of prey and the sheep, right? Which is it's funny because whether or not that engages on an ethnic level is like entirely depends on the situation. But it seems to span these different continua, right? This idea of like you were proud once. And then you entered into a social contract that laid you low and you didn't get to be proud. But I think it's notable that they only really all get to wear the big hats when they go out on the boat. Right. Like that's like the, the big hats really feature. I mean, the, the father mm, wears it, but the Moana doesn't wear a big hat until she goes out on the boat. And I don't mean to speak disrespectfully. It's a big hat. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? Right. Like like the wolf heritage is an ethnic heritage for in Jack London and with Balto. Um, it's not just about being mean. Right. Or being strong or being vicious. It's your it's your it's your people. It's your ancestors. It's your race. Right. Uh, small R, right? Small R race. Um, and in that sense, does your does pride in your race have a place in a society that wants to dictate your behavior as being more subservient than you than you feel is natural for you? Is it, the, the question? One of the things with Balto is that there's a dog that's in Balto that's all dog and there's a huge jerk, but doesn't get. Uh, face the same sort of discrimination that Balto faces, and he's able to get away with more, right? So it's, the idea is that it's not against the nature of dogs to get in fights, 
or to be strong or to be savage and be angry, right? Um, but but it's okay when it's dogs and it's not okay when it's wolves, right? Uh, and, I, and I think that that's part of this whole idea of that floats through the culture in various sorts of ways and that is in Moana here as like, I mean, the, and the Rock is a huge example of this, right? Like, you know, the Rock as a proud Samoan who engages in performative violence, right? And it's like, well, that's being able to be a, a Samoan and part black, right? Black and Samoan. And he's he gets to go out there and perform violence on an equal level with other people like that. That's and, and particularly with like with white people, you know, like the, the rock gets to fight Stone Cold Steve Austin. Right. And like think about all of the levels of that and, and the symbol of the rock as as this person who is able to take pride in his heritage and, and his ethnic characteristics. Right. And his is mm-hmm. his, his family. Right. And, and all that stuff. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going. I'm going on way too much about this. Yeah, no, no. This is your question. It absolutely does. Yeah, and and I I love that we have that um, that particular angle uh, to, to to give a much deeper meaning to the the hero's journey sort of stuff, which I'm going to talk about uh, in in a second, because. Um, too often, I feel like uh, when Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is evoked as a story structure, it's done so from a sort of, I don't know, like a detached sort of um, uh, into over-intellectualized way of trying to boil down stories and, and kind of deconstructing them, um, which I don't want, I don't mean to do here, right? And the fact that, you know, we, we've sussed out um, sort of like this this very important uh, through line about the, the, the wolfness or the voyager-ness that, that, that motivates a lot of the story um, uh, really speaks to the the depth and like the interesting things that Moana is doing. That said, though, there is an interesting thing to be discussed here around the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey uh, structure, um, the, the the beats that it does hit, the beats that it doesn't hit, and also I think uh, in the context of uh, of something that is targeted, uh, I'd say it's a children's movie, right? It's, it's you know it's targeted towards children. The the, the protagonist is not of age, um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So let me just like lay out a few. Uh, high-level ideas here, and then toss it over to the rest of the group to see what you guys think. Um, so overall, I think that it does adhere pretty closely to uh, the, the traditional hero's journey structure. Uh, in particular, this notion of uh, crossing the threshold, right, uh, is very strong. Right, they, the the reef is mentioned as you know this barrier, you know that that, that contains um, their uh, the society as they know it, and beyond that is danger and adventure, and uh, it's a big deal when Moana gets on the the special boat and then crosses crosses the threshold right um the trials that she goes through i very i think uh, mapped to a lot of pieces of the of joseph campbell's hero's journey in particular the belly of the whale right when they meet the crab um the the trials that they go through with the pirates is another important thing there and sort of the ultimate conflict uh, with uh tika and tafiti um that gets a little bit hairy there in terms of what's going on there in terms of like a uh, apotheosis or uh, atonement with the with the father which might actually be the mother in this case, but there that that maps pretty closely, and then of course the return, right, where uh, she comes back with the having uh, you know saved her people, um, brings back life, uh, and then also is master of two worlds. That's another interesting part there, right, where she uh, is of, of land and sea, I guess you could say. Um, so uh, those are parts that map really well. I started to mention some of the parts that get a little bit problematic, and they relate to the the gender aspects of this as well, which you might get to talk more in depth later, right? And this idea that like Moana is the girl, um, and and there's these specific gendered parts of the of the hero's journey where she meets with the goddess or, or there's atonement with the father, which don't quite map particularly well. And you also problematize a little bit with the with the presence of Maui, who is really specifically mentioned as a hero in this, right? But in the case of this, it's much more 
sort of a sidekick, I guess, uh, maybe like a Han Solo type of uh, yeah. He's type, I mean, like a, in, uh, genre-wise, this is among other things, it's a buddy movie, right? And he's yeah. the he's the like color commentator. He's the comic relief. He's the um, he's donkey. Yeah, exactly. He's talking. There you go. There you go. Right. And, and it's it's like almost it seems like he's going through something of a hero's journey, but it's ultimately pulled back. Right. Because obviously because Moana needs her moment to shine there. Um, so uh, just a couple of thoughts to wrap this up and I'll toss it back over to the rest of the group here. Uh, one is that, you know, as we talk and anytime we talk about the hero's journey, um, I usually I like to think of this as like, isn't it great how we can take this structure and combine familiar elements with new ones to tell new and exciting stories at the same time, like tap into a broader tradition. That's great. I, I don't see this as like, oh, just lazily copying and pasting from uh, uh, from uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces and then charting out a bunch of derivative stories. I don't see that it was a, that's the case here. So I, I, I applaud uh, this this movie's use of the hero's journey thing. But the second thing that is beyond that, then, and I'll turn it over to you guys, is like, well, what does it mean then for uh, a very uh, a young girl? In this case, and for young uh, children in the audience to see these heroes' journeys, uh, stories, and, and, and think about how it might apply to, 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 to their the, the story that they're telling of themselves in, in the here and now. Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, with the, with the the heroes' journey stuff, it was. Um with the hero's journey stuff, I, I, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at the kind of the, the, uh, broad, uh, uh, systemic sexism of kind of assuming that the male experience, assuming that the normal experience, the average, the, uh, kind of reference experience is, is the male, is the male experience. And I think that this, I think that this, there's some limitations, but some interesting aspects also in the way that this movie deals with it. Maybe we can talk about those, uh, maybe we can talk about those in, uh, in detail a little later, but the thing that I mean, the thing that I, I sort of want to say about the 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 hero's journey and about criticism in general, right? Like, is that all our critical ideas are ex post facto laws, right? All of our critical ideas are there to impose order on a set of phenomena or a set of experiences uh, that we have and to kind of try to make, to try to make sense of them. And uh, my, uh, my great teacher and Pete's teacher as well, um, uh, John Hollander, used to say in class uh, that the beginning of real criticism is two people talking about uh, a, a creative work, a, a poem, let's say, and saying, hey, you know, when that thing happens... It's kind of like when that thing happens in 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 the other place, right? And this kind of this sort of uh, uh, this sort of drive to draw conclusions um, at its best makes positive claims and not normative claims. That is to say, we can say how things work, but not necessarily uh, not necessarily how things should be. There is there is still a role for artists, even though Joseph Campbell wrote the hero. Uh, the hero with uh, the hero with a thousand faces. Um, I, I forgot for a second how many faces the the hero. Um, uh, four, four faces. No, no, it's with... no, it's a thousand faces, Pete. It's a oh. thousand, one it's... thousand faces. <laughs> the hero die with twenty faces. Yeah. So the the idea that the sort of the woman, you know, the woman as temptress is uh, it is a. Um, is sort of missing from this or is part of the hero's journey, right? Like it's, the idea is that the appeal 
uh, the appeal of domesticity. It's the appeal of domesticity or the appeal or the kind of the sexual allure to kind of take you off the, uh, to take you off the, the path. If I remember my, my monomyth correctly, it's a sort of thing, uh, that goes off the path. So I think we can generalize that away from the kind of the systemically sexist, uh, uh, uh formulation of it. Um, and, and sort of say like what, you know what almost what almost takes her off uh what almost takes her off the path um at you know at that point or what what is the false it's a, it's a sort of false god or a uh or a sort of false uh, uh sort of false idol i don't know the the thing formally in terms of like storytelling and structure um that struck me is that again and again and again, there, there seemed to be a process of education or a process of sort of, uh, doing something wrong and then doing it right again. Right. Like the first, uh, canoe journey out was wrong and ended in shipwreck. The second canoe journey out was right. The first, um, uh, the first assault on not assault, the first approach to Tefiti. Uh, I was thinking assault because the the lava monster was throwing uh, was throwing you know rocks and stuff. The first approach to Tefiti was wrong. The second one was right, right, and that this this uh, seems to happen a lot. This seemed to be the thing, the thing that happened in the movie. And I think this relates to it's being a coming of age story as well, among, among the other things, right? Because she's a, she's a girl of sort of not, not quite of sexual maturity, right? Like not quite of adult age. This might be her coming of age, uh, story. Um, you know, and kind of, kind of coming of age in terms of like taking a, uh, uh, taking her place in society as this kind of, uh, master of two worlds, um, both, both a villager and a voyager. And the, uh, and the, um, you know, and also, but but sort of not coming of age in a way that a Disney princess coming coming uh, a Disney pr- princess comes of age. Uh, it, that is to say, as a as a kind of marriageable young woman, right? As a as a kind of cornerstone of. Uh, as a kind of cornerstone of domesticity, and and to a certain extent, right? This this. Uh movie avoids the donkey effing conundrum to a certain extent, <laughs> right? Because not only does, uh, does Moana, is there no question of the donkey surrogate, right? Uh, Maui being uh, a romantic possibility in this, he's a sort of older brother. He's a, a mentor to a certain extent. He's a, a, a sort of millstone around her neck. He's, he's a um, companion. He's also a supernatural being, right? Not really yeah. of, uh, of this realm. Right. Um, so that's uh he's also a caricature of masculinity to to a certain extent right like and and uh and in his being ridiculous is kind of not really a, a romantic possibility for her um but also when you get back to the island what happens is not a spate of marriages that uh you know that sort of restores order and denies um, everything cool that happened in the forest or on the ocean in this case, what happens is a return to the ocean because the ocean is awesome. Right. And that's a, you know, this is a cool thing. I mean, I think this is a cool, uh, a cool aspect, um, a cool aspect of this movie, the, the sense in which she kind of, uh, the sense in which she, she finds adventure. Um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about one, uh, another thing though, that, that, um, 
uh, I want to talk about uh, structurally the way that this is not just uh, not just a coming of age story, not just a hero's journey, not just a musical, um, but uh, the way in which this is an animated movie and the kind of animated movie that this is. And it is really a it's really this movie is a heteroglossia. Um, the uh uh the idea that we are are in a um we're in a visual representation that can go into that can go into a lot of uh, a lot of different ways um, think of the little mermaid think of uh think of the lion king right think of even aladdin with all the magic all those movies happen on one level of reality, right? There's there's a sort of uh, uh, there's a sort of continuity um, to that. The this movie though uh, doesn't ha- happen on one level of reality. The animation happens at the level of reality, the physical reality of living on an island and, and voyaging on the sea, uh, and even certain supernatural things like lava monsters and the ocean that kind of peaks up, like the uh, uh, like the being that kills Tasha Yar in uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. But um, but more than that, it happens on Maui's tattoos. Right. It happens in the kind of the kind of dream sequence where it happens on the the uh, the hangings that grandma has. It happens in the dream sequence. Um, Grandma actually becomes an animator as she pours the black liquid uh, on the uh, representing the kind of the lava, the the black lava that's drying um, onto the the uh onto her hanging uh it happens in uh in a a song and kind of dream sequences as like uh ideograms come to life and and sort of um line drawings uh line drawings start to dance i'm not sure there's much to to much more to say about it than than it is interesting that this that this movie uh uses um uses these tools visually as well as the kind of the the uh core reality of the uh the core reality of the animation but i don't know do, do you guys think that this is related to the story at all i mean does this have does this uh say anything to you about what kind of what this movie is saying so the idea that it's a heteroglossia, yeah, yeah, because there's different sorts of levels on which the animation is happening. Yes. Okay, and whether that's I think I think it totally it connects to the story. I think a lot of a lot of Disney movies do that, right? Where they have a scene that happens in either a different style or seems to kind of comment on it. The one that jumps to mind is Rafiki in The Lion King, kind of wiping out Simba and then like drawing Simba back in or putting Simba's mane on, right? Oh, is that a similar sort of phenomenon to what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. That's that that is a little more postmodern. I mean, that's like duck amuck almost. But like, yeah, I say, I, you know, <laughs> no, I know unpack that. Talk about duck amuck for a second. Well, uh, duck amuck is a is a Daffy Duck cartoon. It's a Chuck Jones cartoon where um, Daffy is, you know, Daffy who is like a quintessential loser who is always kind of railing against the universe and and being wronged by the universe is. Uh, is menaced and interfered with, right, by a giant animated pencil that comes in from outside as though it were the pencil of the animator. Um, 
and Daffy Duck has to kind of confront uh, uh, Daffy has to confront his uh, uh, status as an animated being uh, and, and when he talks too much his bill can be erased and he has to stop talking uh, and things like this and it goes through different styles there's there are different styles of art that that happen uh, as he kind of goes goes through his uh, uh, his journey so the idea of kind of like erasing and re the uh, erasing and kind of redrawing an animated character uh, is I think indebted to that indebted to that like seminal Chuck Jones cartoon I'll see if I can find a YouTube link and put it in the show notes I, I know that I'm familiar with it, but I also don't know if some of our younger listeners got to see Duckamuck on TV at some point. So I figured we'd unpack it a little bit. Uh, well, one thing that I think this connects with, and that struck me while watching the movie, is that, well, for a movie about nature, there's a whole lot of machina, right? There's a whole lot of, of machines, or rather, Deus Ex Machina. There's, there's a whole bunch of – there's a lot of times in Moana, and again – I don't think this is unique to Moana, but it happens a lot where Moana, something would go wrong or something would in, get in the way of Moana and she, she would die. Uh, but she's miraculously saved by some f- force or other that's out of her control. And this happens constantly. Right. Every, like the, the it's, it's drawn out to the point of of absurdity, but also of being like this is a feature, not a bug, where every time someone falls off the boat or jumps off the boat, the ocean itself like lifts them on and puts them on the boat. Right. And that that's a form of heterogloss of animation too that's kind of a duck amok right where it's like no we're gonna watch the story of moana and maui we're not gonna watch that story and and it it kind of raises since so little of what happens is the result of well since so little of what happens depends on choice and so much of it is is there's constant guiding forces that are being introduced to kind of put bumpers on the plot that 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 Raises the idea that what's at stake here is not the uh, events, but the way in which the events are interpreted, right? For the people who are in the story. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, this, Mark, uh, what do you this think? is this is or, what I was thinking as well, Mark. Yeah, what? Yeah, what are your thoughts? You go, Matt, and then I'll. I'll, I'll well, that, that, that yeah, this is it. Uh, it's interesting. Like, and and to me, this has to do with the idea of this as a as a revisionist history movie, like like uh, a revision of the early period, the classical period, let's call it, of Disney movies, and the middle period, the Mencken Ashman uh, era of Di- of Disney movies, right? That that um the idea the idea about identity and about a sort of a young girl hero and um you know the the idea that it doesn't end in marriage right that that's not the the kind of ultimate uh goal for her and then the idea that this movie is um uh this movie is about kind of uh formative narratives of the self and kind of understanding like one of the one of the lyrics in the uh away away you know that i think of it as the away away song and a very good lyric away away because it sounds like it could be an unspecified polynesian language as well as being the word the english word away um the uh you know and it's the song that that uh by the way the vocal on that song is lin-manuel miranda singing um about the glories of the the uh voyaging life um it says it says we tell the stories of our ancestors in an unbroken line right is a lyric in 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 that song and and this is a a, a sort of uh, this is a movie about how you arrive at a story like that and it's also engaged in the 2016 question of 
you know, what stories do we give to children to help them in kind of building blocks in, in forming their identity? And that's why it's a, that's the kind of revisionism of this because it reflects kind of current ideas, uh, you know, about, about um, things like this, and the the sort of the the heteroglossia, uh, I think, is a trope of kind of narrative revision or a trope of kind of narrative construction, um, where the the different like as you kind of go sort of more and more into primitivism of the like the stick figures. Um, or the tattoos or, you know, you go from, from tapestry to tattoo to kind of stick figure to kind of dreamscape, you know, that, uh, that these things are, are like, you're going progressively into more and more, uh, entrenched kind of ancestral history of the self and how those narratives are constructed, I think is, uh, is part of this, this yeah. film's artistic project. It gives the whole thing a, I guess, a meta level uh, or perhaps a, a certain sense of self-awareness, um, which I'm only just now connecting, like, you know, the, the heteroglossy of the animation, like the tattoos that are dancing around and helping to tell the story. I'm only now connecting that with the throwaway joke about how um, Moana is clearly a Disney princess because she has a, a skirt and has a, an animal sidekick, right? right. I, I, if I'm reading what you're saying here correctly, they're part of the same part of the project, which is um, to, as you, as you mentioned before, like, you know, uh, to challenge the, the conventional narrative and, and then place, uh, uh, place this narrative in, 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 in context and in dialogue with the, with the, with the broader Disney story. Yeah, uh, I mean, I th- I think that that's right, and I think like, and to me, that's a feature, not a bug, of this story. That it's that it's yeah, kind of yeah, 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 yeah. that it's really it it is a story that works on the level of story telling these things, and it also um, it also works on. Uh, it also works on the level of kind of meta story and kind of situating this film into a canon of Disney films that uh, a canon of Disney films that over time has kind of shifted in terms of what its priorities um, and what its virtues are. Yeah, uh, I, in terms of virtue, just to touch on virtue, um, one interesting question that the the movie raises kind of sideways is why does she go – first of all, why does she go voyaging with the chicken instead of the pig, mm-hmm. right? Which is interesting because you think the pig is going to be the sidekick, but then the chicken turns out to be the sidekick. And then there's that little moment where Moana eats the pork and says it's delicious mm-hmm. and then is like, ah! they're sort of like what about your pig sidekick and she's like ah like and there's this like she protects the turtle from the birds right because she doesn't want the birds to eat the turtle um I was talking with my with my girlfriend about this, and we we both agreed that if this movie had been made twenty or thirty years ago, uh, or thirty years ago, or forty years ago, the father would have burned the ships, and she would have had to ride the turtle, right? That she saved as a child, um, because she there's this moment where she saves the turtle early on, and he never comes back. Uh, but this this idea, yeah, that there are val- there are a lot of values conversations in the movie that are not necessarily what you would think of as kind of the core form and function values of what the story is trying to say like the movie has commentary on like 
omnivorism, right? Like the bird eats rocks and eats. Like, what are we making of the of like? That, that's really interesting, right? Like, Moana eats the pork and then looks at the pig, who's her friend, and she her actual psychic is a chicken who's supposed to eat food, but instead eats like rocks and wood. They're like not supposed to be food, right? And Mo and and Maui keeps trying to feed the chicken, and the chicken refuses to eat. And uh, yeah, the chicken kind of pecks eat, at the grain ineffectually, right? <laughs> And the, ch- the chicken scatters the grain and doesn't eat it. But the reason that Maui is giving the chicken food is because he wants to eat the chicken. And because the chicken doesn't eat the food, he doesn't eat the chicken. Right. That's just like levels and levels, man. It just gets very complicated. I'm not sure if there's actually uh, – I think it's more of a, of a reveling in the in the ambiguities and the kind of uh, necessary hypocrisy. Because it's a more aware sort of hypocrisy than a lot of Disney movies have about like animals are all just like people. And like, 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 you know, Mufasa and Simba get to eat animals because they're lions and animals are like people. And wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like, what does that mean? Or is it OK if you're high status enough and of the right ethnicity, you get to eat other people? Like, probably not. But uh, it's just the metaphors don't extend quite that far. Right. <laughs> it, 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 the metaphors in Disney about animals and food are rare, rarely come all the way around to sort of like the Peter Singer hero's journey, which is where you just <laughs> all your animal products. Oh, God. The, uh, yeah, exactly. There are, there are like very strict scope conditions to a, to a Disney metaphor, right? Yeah. I wanted to go back to one thing you said, Matt. Which is and, and 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 we were talking about this hero's journey thing, and and I wanted and you were sort of posing the question, what, what, like, well, sort of why is it important, or or to what degree does it matter or work? Because because you, you talked about because the the monomyth right like. The, mon- the Joseph Campbell monomyth is an attempt to say that all these different cultures have all either independently or in dialogue with each other come up with the same sort of basic story about their literature and civilization for some purpose. Right. And and the problem, the biggest problem with the monomyth is that it is very clearly coded from a very specific cultural standpoint of most specifically being like a dude, right? Uh, and like a particularly prosperous sort of dude. Right? Yeah, like, and also a Western or Northern European dude, by yeah. and large, right? Yeah, like, I mean, like Middle Eastern, yeah, is sure. sort of. But the way it's discussed, at the very least, like there are things in the monomyth that can apply to like Africa and Asia and those kinds of myth- and myths from those places. But like the actual way it's discussed, it does not really monofy everything. And, and Moana. Not mono. Is Moana the Manoa myth? Wait, hold on. Is, <laughs> is Moana have a last name? Does it spell? Is it like uh, her last? Her, her last name is a clan name, and it's the it's the island, right? It, oh, okay. If there's an anagram there, put it in the comments and the conversation about the podcast. But but yeah, the idea of like if you swap out. The super because because you can come at the monomyth stuff and say, and I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of the monomyth, but it, it, it is a good storytelling uh, device. If you can come at the monomyth and say the monomyth is so Western, masculine, heteronormative, imperialistic that it should not exist. Right. It should be gone. You should get rid of it and you should not think about it because it, the the idea of Westernness and imperialness is so baked into the monolith as to be monomyth as to be inextricable. The other alternative might be, well, or there is something to the monomyth, but the way it's described by Joseph Campbell reflects all those things. Like, can you strip out the can you really strip out all of this sort of aesthetics and that sort of like that, that's can you reskin it? Right. To talk about, you know, brutal killing of animals and stuff. Can you reskin the monomyth with a different cultural resonance, a different gender? Right. Can you do that? Um, and I think Moana seems like an attempt to do that. 
right? To say like, well, the a resounding yes. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. sure, right? I mean, Mark, I mean, go for to, it. To back up even even further, Pete, you're saying that there is this point of view in which people say that we should do away with the model, but we shouldn't talk about it, we shouldn't structure our stories around it. Like, is that really a thing? Are there people out there that are actually strongly advocating that position? There are people who advocate everything. I mean, well, let, I mean, let, yeah, this is this is let, the internet. Let me, let me say that I think. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I shouldn't say it so dismissively. <laughs> no, you're think- you're you're right on, man. <laughs> but I will say this. I'll, I'll posit that, right, as that there is certainly there certainly is a uh, a, a critical energy around uh, like there used to, I think there used to be and these things come and go with fashion. The pendulum swings one year. T.S. Eliot's a hero. Another year. T.S. Eliot's a villain. So on and so forth. It goes, you know, oh, Shakespeare's great. Oh, Shakespeare's irrelevant. It comes back and forth. Right. All this stuff. Um, like, oh, we should all read, you know, Beloved in high school. Like, oh, no, we should be reading, you know, uh, we shouldn't be reading that. We should be reading, you know, Zulu myth and all this other stuff. Um, but the, the idea being that I think there is a critical energy, a sort of political critical energy in the discourse that I'm encountering now, which is saying is really calling to account uh, very fiercely participation in storytelling and art form that is counter to particular political interest. Right. Don't read this. Don't watch this. Don't uh, don't do this. Right. The idea that that the answer to this sort of thing is withdrawal and replacement. Right. That it reminds me of uh, of like there's a great video. A great. How rarely do I say this? There's a great YouTube video by Yuva Bowl that, that was just really <laughs> remarkable. Yuva Bowl uh, recorded a great YouTube video. This was around the time Yuva Bowl, of course, the director of Postal and a variety of other uh, terrible movie adaptations of video games that were mostly done to exploit the German tax code, right? And Yuva Bowl is a, a former uh, mob enforcer and pugilist who directed these movies, and and uh, and he gave this video where he said, um, you know, I don't know why, and he said it in German accent, and, and he, I don't know why you keep saying. Uh, that that I shouldn't make movies. Um, you know, if 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 I stop making movies, my money doesn't become your money, right? And it's like you can make your thing with your little camera and your brother with the ketchup, and nobody's gonna watch it, right? You can make a movie, and, and I, just this idea of you all saying like my money doesn't become your money if I don't make a movie. Uh, I think that a lot of the energy nowadays, I think it gets connected with this sort of. Um, with the the constant the sort of social media in that you are you you read news from the perspective of people who who do encounter the possibility of like oh if people made movies in a slightly different way i would make more money right or are my friends would make more money or these other specific people that i care about and i feel are disadvantaged they would make more money but in this in the in the in the media landscape that i think we all grew up with which was much more of a one too many mass media that idea doesn't really work Right. The idea that like you can sort of shout into the wind and somebody's going to give you money to make a movie because you're the right person to do it. Yeah. Right. It only works once you're actually once you're actually sort of inside. I can even say like it's a conversation that's occurring inside the reef. 
right? Like on the island. This is not a conversation that's spanning island to island. I mean, it is. The conversation goes out and people hear it. But there is meant to be a kind of rubber meets the road influence that's happening and saying like, uh, you know, if you don't make these kinds of stories, then more of the money is going to go to people who've been unfairly disadvantaged in the industry. I don't know, Matt. I'm, I'm rambling about this. You're you're in the you're sort of inside the reef, right? I, I so, guess uh, so. Like I, I at least have a good vantage point to inside the reef from where I sit doing this <laughs> podcast. You know, I'm like on a high point point maybe on the border of the reef and i have binoculars uh this conversation is bad it's just that it doesn't feel necessarily relevant to me as i'm not making movies right but i don't know i mean go yeah for i mean I, I well i don't know i i uh, connected to two um i connected to two things one is falstaff saying uh dost thou think because thou art virtuous that there will be no more cakes and ale right like uh and the other thing is is uh to a a fenzelian original uh saying uh saying that i like and have have sort of structured my life around to a certain extent which is that uh superiority is no substitute for victory and that like you know your superior your moral superiority as a hyper Hypothetical filmmaker, right? Does not really carry water where the rubber meets the road. I don't know. These metaphors well, are. What you're saying is that I would rather see the movie that you would make than hear you talk about a movie that someone else shouldn't have made. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is another uh, deeply held Fenzelian principle that, like, uh, you should get out there into the marketplace of ideas and advocate for your um, advocate for your uh, uh, advocate for your point of view. Also, well, actually, Matt, you know what I'm going to well actually you on? I don't. That's uh, Sir Toby Belch said that. Mm. Not Falstaff. That's from Twelfth Night. Okay, I'm sorry. I it, it's a Falstaffian thing to say, but I <laughs> I is. definitely I hang my head in shame, and I I acknowledge your uh, superiority as a Shakespearean. No, I I had to Google it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's right. I'm going to Google it because we owe our we we don't. If someone's taking an English test and that, that comes up, I don't want them to get it wrong because of us. Well, it's, I want them I, to get it wrong because they get their Shakespeare from us rather than from reading it. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> a, that is an interesting uh, that is an interesting thing. Because in Twelfth Night, Toby Belch is right, and actually in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, uh, Toby Belch might be might be wrong uh, because mm-hmm. of the way the prince, when he becomes the king, when he becomes King Henry the Fifth, uh, he rejects Falstaff. Right? He sort of there. There actually uh, there actually are no more cakes and ale at the end of <laughs> <laughs> at the end of Henry the Fourth, Part. Yeah. Uh, like part what two. is what is honor? Heir? Who hath it? He who died a Wednesday. The the, the response to that is the Saint Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, so let's. Uh, I mean, we're 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 on a roll, but we're probably we're probably sort of nearing uh, nearing the close of this. But the. Um this is this is a movie that I think intersects with contemporary ideas about uh, identity. I I don't even want to use the word identity politics. Uh, I, no. I I wish I could drain that word. I wish I could use that word. It's in, not a very specific term. It's very general. I would love to be more specific about it. Well, yeah, ex- exactly. It's like like a lot of uh, like a lot of progressive terms of abuse. Like a lot of progressive pejoratives, they actually are. Uh, 
pretty generalized name calling and it actually uh, I, I feel like it helps the cause of, of peace, justice and progress more to to work with a scalpel and not with a uh, not with a machete, right? Like and, and to actually precisely define what's wrong with the, with the things that we're talking about. But but it's it's um, uh, it's it's fair to say that this film, I think, is in dialogue uh, with certain ideas about uh, with certain ideas about gender and culture. It's it's a um, uh, it's a Disney movie. It's in dialogue with the princesses. It's in dialogue with the revisionist princesses. And I would call Moana kind of a third order uh, Disney princess. Kind of kind of um, like like almost like a Princess and the Frog. Is that where the third order starts? Uh, I, he, was second that order bef- being po- po- second order being Pocahontas, perhaps. Yeah, second. Well, order I, be- I think of second order as being like Little Mermaid. Yeah, exactly. Right? Ariel saying- through. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Second order being the the Menken Ashman movies through Pocahontas. Yeah, that that is a good. Uh, that's a good space. And the third order being Merida and uh, you know yeah, Brave. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Frozen. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. And that and that this is an interesting, you know, uh, that that we're in this. And so in, in terms of like, I, I think it's I think what this movie says about sort of gender gender issues is is not issues. Again, a word I wish we didn't have to uh, have to use. I, I think the movie is interesting on the subject. And, and I just want to like in in terms of the stages of uh, the 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 ages of man being seven. Right. Like first the the infant mewling and puking in his mother's arms right like for for the girl there's one um there's one that's missing right and it's the kind of the romance it's the kind of the the sexual maturity stage right because we get moana as a toddler we get moana as a a sort of maybe early adolescent or kind of coming coming of age like late latency uh early pubescent child um and then there's there's mom uh who is you know a uh, a matriarch there's uh uh, well, the mom who is a a matron. There's grandma who is a matriarch, and then there's uh, has sort of transcended into a fully practically a spiritual being at that even by the beginning. Yeah, of the she's movie. a fish ghost as well yeah. as a matriarch. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, and then there's the um, you know, and then there's uh, ta. I keep wanting to say de- Tahiti. It's not Tahiti. Tafiti. Tafiti. Um, yeah, that that uh, who is a kind of a, a principle of uh, a principle of kind of feminine abundance and and life giving a, a sort of birth uh, a, a kind of birth goddess the power to uh, a, a kind of sacred feminine right and like in in this is I just I just want to point out that in this is missing an idea of you know of the kind of stage of life where we form romance and kind of form attachments and and uh the vicissitudes of that and that that's yeah. probably i mean that's not the target audience you know um there there are, and there are plenty if that's your thing there are plenty of disney movies for you right like you don't need I to mean, uh I, 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 you've been saying you've said this a couple of times i wouldn't go so far as to say that about this movie but i would say that it approaches i mean there i would say that it skips romance but doesn't skip marriage because I, I feel like Moana's relationship first with her father. I, I, I also disagree when you said that there was no donkey effing conundrum because I absolutely do think there's a sexual dynamic between Moana and, Ma, and Maui in the movie. But it's not the sexual dynamic of like there's like a, a you know, because Maui is a replacement for her father. Right. 
because because Moana is trying to teach her father or he's hearing from her father that she can't be who she is. Right. And then she is sort of parenting or being parented by Maui. It goes back and forth. Right. But but this idea of like they have trouble in their relationship and the grandmother gives her advice to like take him by the ear and tell him how it's going to be. Right. Uh, like That seems to be like a way that a mother treats a child, but could also be a way that like an old fashioned wife treats a husband in these kinds of like, uh, you know, overdone kinds of stories. Right. This idea that that Moana needs to learn to be in the presence of Maui and not be subverted, not allow her own will to be uh, subjugated under the not necessarily the reality of Maui's capacity for violence, but the cultural power of the patriarchal validation of Maui's capacity for violence, right? This idea that like Maui is the big hero because he's big and strong and he can do the Samoan war dance, right? And he can, he can, he can fly like a hawk and he can battle things and he can hoist, he can chip the ovum right out of the ovary of the earth, right? And carry it around. <laughs> and, and then like, and as such bring ruin onto everyone. Right. Uh, but, but this idea that like that, that Moana, is, that it's about reprivileging. It's it's a, it reads a lot like one of those business articles about how female executives are better because they're empathetic, right? This idea of like there are feminine leadership values and masculine leadership values, and Maui has all the masculine leadership values. And this movie is about uh, privileging the female. I'll ask this. Here's the question: Why there's like the prophecy, right? In the prophecy, Moana has to go find Maui. And, and keep in mind, Moana already has the heart of Tahini or Tafiki, Tafiti. She has the heart T- of Tahini is uh, the sesame paste. That's, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to call her the lava because she's like the lava lady in the Pixar short. Uh, so we call her lava lady. Um, you guys remember that from from. Uh, uh-huh, yeah, Out, I thought it? about that a lot. Yeah. When yeah. I saw that. Uh, which is which that's what is that's that's the uh, courtship phase of this movie that isn't there is the lava short from uh, from before uh, mm. before Inside Out. But why does she have to get Maui at all? Why does she need Maui? She already has the heart and, and she is able to get into the cove by herself i mean maui helps a little bit but like most of the time that she spends with maui doesn't advance the quest of getting the heart back to uh lava lava lady right sure and, but the, the idea i mean i um, the, the, it's not a question without an answer but go ahead no, no i th- i mean i think there is an answer and i think the answer is in like in the village at the beginning of the movie the the uh there is this sense of kind of a place for everything and everything in its place of kind of harmonious social roles working in concert with one another and kind of masculine uh, uh and feminine virtues are productively balanced against one another uh in order to kind of make the it's it's a kind of utopia to to make the yeah. thing work um it, it's in denial about certain other things but but not about those things you have to get maui because the important i mean because the important thing is to is not just the the stone going back it's it's healing the rift right between the kind of the the masculine and the feminine principles uh of this movie i mean like maui yeah from a certain point i mean this is this is uh i think an interesting movie because the the masculine hero is um uh is is uh, such a baby right like that that the the kind of the masculinity the kind of like overbearing performance of masculinity is revealed to be so so fragile and actually like even just in terms of 
you know, the masculine, the, the, what you might call the masculine virtues of heroism, uh, 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 intrepidness, physical courage, resolve, grit, um, uh, you know, thinking on your feet, uh, cool headedness in the face of danger. Um, Moana isn't, isn't perfect the first time, but she masters herself. And, and the second time in the kind of the better version, she always does something. There's always kind of a learning process, right? Like she always does something once and does it again. And, and when she does it again, like she, she steals herself, she grits her teeth. And, and uh, she really gets she really gets into it. Um, the the uh, it's funny that the the hero's journey ends as kind of master or uh, freedom to live. Moana as master of two worlds, and you can kind of think of of those as like the social world and the voyaging world. Um, but it's also kind of the masculine and the 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 masculine and the feminine world uh, mm-hmm. a, a little bit, and the. Um, you know, and the the final thing in in the hero's journey, I think the final aspect is freedom to live. And to me, that that is the the uh, sequence of her kind of swinging around the ship and doing various things, like able to uh, to use all of her. Uh, all of her capacities, right, in in uh, without restriction, and and to kind of be authentically herself in in all the variety, uh, all the variety of herself that that represents sort of the the freedom to to live. The the, the reason, I, I, to a certain extent, the reason Maui is important is because he he's a foil. He shows that she's a better masculine hero than he is, uh, mm. and also a better feminine hero than than he is, and the the feminine heroism of this movie seems to be centered around ideas of recognition right the grandmother saying to her i see you right uh if you if you ever hear a voice inside telling you follow the farthest star god i remember a lot of lyrics from this movie uh telling you father follow the farthest star uh that's who you really are right and then saying to the to the lava goddess um or the lava what you assume probably is like a dude lava creature uh the um uh that i see you i i can see who you really who you really are um that this you know this is kind of not unrelated the kind of the the transfer from the dude lava creature to the to the kind of the female uh the female abundant goddess um to to moana's kind of mastering of of both of those uh both of those things what's on your mind mark yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about Moana mastering the two worlds, especially in the sort of final conflict at the end where Maui is doing his fighting thing, his masculine thing, and Moana is doing her sort of more more feminine thing, uh, but it ultimately kind of reconciles the two of them. I wonder if that scene where she essentially becomes Moses of Polynesia <laughs> helps us understand that at all. Uh, now, first of all, do you agree with me that her parting of the sea was very much like a, a Moses type of moment? Sure. Yeah. So if if so, is that essentially just like her her channeling a a mas- a traditionally masculine view of leadership and of agency, or is there something else going on well, there? I well, I have thoughts about that, but I I t- just talked for a while, and I, I want to hear what Pete has to say. Uh, so is is the is the parting of the sea a masculine thing to do i think um I think of Moses, the masculinity of Moses is the masculinity of the lawgiver. Right. Moses is the the let my people go. Moses gathers up his people. Moses brings down the tablets. Moses kind of tells everybody how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And when Moses parts the sea, 
it's in order to bring about something that is supposed to happen in accordance with the rules of the rules of heaven and earth or the rules of heaven, which are greater than the rules of earth. And, and so Moana in parting the sea to uh, Lava Lady is I would say that there's something masculine about it, but there's also something about Moana is the one who gets to set the rules you know, um, in, in that moment. And uh, and that the ocean respects Moana's agency as kind of an agent for supernatural law or natural law. And, I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, or and Mark, also, yeah. by, yeah, by yeah, the way, it ties in, go ahead, Matt. Uh, by the way, Moana, I think, is like a Polynesian word for sea. Right. Okay. So it's so it's a word. Uh, okay. It's a okay. word for ocean. And actually, just it, just in terms of like uh, the ideas that I've been trying to develop, like the the uh, um, uh, Moana, uh, the ocean is is masculine and feminine, uh, powerful and yielding uh, or encompassing. Right. Like the the uh, combines a lot of the different virtues that that uh, we've identified as being sort of masculine and feminine. Sorry. Back to yeah. you, Mark. Yeah, I was just thinking that, like, you know, to, to, to sort of tie this all together, right? You know, at the end of the movie, we see Moana. Well, or actually, towards the beginning of the movie, we see Moana coming into her own as a leader, as a manager, right? She sets agriculture policy for her people. And by the end, she's essentially the commander of the Navy as well, too, right? So, like, she has fully established herself by the end. of the, and she, Oh, and she puts the, the pink con- uh, conch shell on top of the stack of rocks. So she has fully established herself. As a leader, as someone who has dominion over land, and, and, and right, and, and also know, also as a as a female, right? Like the the sort of the the yonic ro- the yonic shell sitting yeah, on top yeah, of all too. of the phallic rocks, right? Yeah, yeah. So that really does tie up everything we just talked about here, sort of the, the the dominion over both the land and sea, and or what traditionally masculine and feminine fem, feminine uh, areas. Uh, I think it's great, right? Like it speaks to the, the the surprising, not surprising, but the the hidden the depth that is hidden beneath the surface of these so called quote unquote children's movies right there's a lot of yeah. sophistication going like on. the depth hidden beneath the surface of the uh, ocean uh, and speaking of speaking of beneath the surface i think it's worthwhile and we talked about temptation right earlier on and how there's not necessarily temptation in this movie so much like in a sexual way but the last the last thing maybe to sort of remark on is that all of these matters like like Moa, like Maui and the lava lady like re-reconciling with the lava lady as a proxy for Maui's mom who threw Maui into the ocean and Maui has this kind of original sin with women all this stuff being tied together Moana does she want to stay does she want to go is her grandma alive is her grandma a fish ghost all this is stuff of great importance hmm. and the movie does have the opposite of that which it has the shiny right Yes, the, the shiny. The antithesis to all of this is the shiny, which is the giant crab at the bottom of the Hall of Monsters. Right. The dimension of the monster dimension uh, voiced by Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concord. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, so great. <laughs> and, and his, I mean, of course, I mentioned like, oh, they're going to find the magic carpet from Aladdin in there. Right. But uh, but saying, you know, it, it is it is funny. I think I think it is it is an ultimate credit or an ultimate description of Moana's character as as a nexus of so many important things that you never believe for a second that Moana is going to look at all that stuff and be like, Oh man, yeah, that's a gold. That's a golden goblet, right? Like F this whole ocean thing. I'm taking that plate and I'm taking that plate home and I'm going to be the richest lady on the Island. Right? Like there's, there's never a sense <laughs> that there's anything in the shiny object hall, not the glow paint, not the rave lights, nothing that Moana and Maui wants 
uh, other than that which will advance the plot of the movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in that sense, it's a very short-lived foil, but one that I think we all enjoyed. Especially, did you guys wait to the after the credits scene? I did it, but I heard about it afterwards. There was a good uh, uh, Little Mermaid reference. Yeah, right? I mean, talk right. Talk about what we've always been. Is Moana a meta movie? Well, if you wait till after the credits, <laughs> he talks to you about like not only is Moana a meta movie, but Moana exists in a universe where the characters in the movie watch other Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and they buy the merchandise apparently and keep it in their hordes of wealth deep right. beneath the ocean. Gadgets and gizmos are plenty. <laughs> Who's it's and what's it's galore? You want thingamabobs? I've got twenty uh, episodes of the Overthinking a Podcast <laughs> and more, but this one has come to to a close. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks very much to Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee for joining me, Matt Rather, uh, on this voyage across the sea to uh, restore balance to the force and. Uh, 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 enter the cave and to get the ultimate boon um, come back uh, be rescued from without cross the return threshold and become the master of the world's of podcasting and now you have freedom to live free of this podcast but we'll be back next week with more overthinking it till then visit us on the web at overthinking where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Hey, Harvey. Hey, Harvey Firestein. Hey, Pete. Hey, Harvey, do you like Moana? <laughs> I love it. It doesn't matter whether you liked Moana. If you smell what Maui is cooking rock i got 20 bentleys in the west indies <laughs> how did you get them there by boat <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have an outrigger canoe <laughs> it doesn't matter that you have an outrigger canoe